Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Henry VIII. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. We are indeed. Uh, welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of England, from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. Um, and this week, Graham's favourite, so you probably get carried away. Many people think have been looking forward to this. It's the big chap, Henry VIII. Uh, he's born in 1491, son of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York, becomes king in 1509, so he's 17 years old. He's just a few months short of his 18th birthday. But does that mean he's got a minority? They decided not really to bother with that. Yeah. Technically, Margaret Beaufort was his grandmother, was nominally right, okay. regent, but effectively he goes straight in as king. And he's the 12th great-grand-uncle of Elizabeth II. Right, OK. Straight now, in. In terms of his appearance, we generally have the view of Henry VIII as the quite large, fat uh, man. Yeah. Big red beard and all these sorts of Big things. Big codpiece on his armour. Indeed. But in his younger days, he looked rather different. It's very tall, about six foot two, had a 32 inch waist and a 40 ish inch chest. This is when he's sort of 17, 21. Very strong, very athletic, straight auburn hair, and was said to have been very attractive. Right. Indeed, a Venetian envoy around the time of his coronation said that he was the handsomest potentate I ever set eyes on, with an extremely fine calf to his leg <laughs> and a round face so beautiful that it would become a pretty woman. Um, in terms of his character, this also is said to be a lovely thing. Uh, Erasmus, a very noted humanist scholar of the age, um, described him as a man, of ge- a man of gentle friendliness and gentle in debate. He acts more like a companion than a king. Mm. But he also has this great ability to charm people and he can dominate the room. And yet, as Thomas More noted, he makes every man feel that he's enjoying his special favour. He's Bill Clinton. Yeah, so when you're talking to him, it feels like you're the most yeah. important person yeah. in the room at the time. So he's got great charm, he's very attractive, he's a nice guy, he's 17, he's king. Right, so kick us off. Indeed, his accession, as we might expect from all of that, is very, very popular. Remember from last time, his father, Henry VII, the final years have been rather dark, rather miserly, people quite relieved to see him actually just gone. But at least there was a succession this time. But at least there was a succession, and it's a new start. So they uh, get rid of all the old financial restrictions that Henry VII had put in place. The chief ministers, um, in terms of finance, Empson and Dudley, were arrested and then later executed. So he's starting early. Starting early. (laughs) And um, in terms of how excited people were, this is a quote from one contemporary, Lord Mountjoy. If you could see how all the world here is rejoicing in the possession of so great a prince, how his life is all their desire, the heavens laugh, the earth exults, all things are full of milk, of honey, of nectar. Another reason why this might be so popular, which David Starkey has argued, that in many ways 1509 can be seen as when the Wars of the Roses is properly Mm. finished. So although we've still got some Yorkist pretenders alive, they never really cause any trouble... Henry VIII is both a Lancastrian from his father and a Yorkist from his mother. And he looks a lot like his maternal grandfather, the Yorkist, Edward IV. One of the first things he does um, when he accedes to the throne is to marry Catherine of Aragon 13 days before his coronation. She was this Spanish infanta, so daughter of the sort of new king and queen of Spain. 
widow of Henry's older brother, Prince Arthur, who died in 1502. Mm. And then she'd been kept in pretty poor um, conditions by Henry VII for the last seven years. But Henry VIII falls for her and marries her. Okay. So it's a magnificent double coronation, the first great one of its kind since Edward I and Eleanor of Castile. Of course. Of course. Great procession, epic feasting, displays of jousting goes on for days and days, only gets interrupted when Henry's grandmother, the formidable Margaret Beaufort, dies. Oh, so a the, few days after the coronation. Right. There's, if she was the one sister. who was doing his minority, then it's all done for anyway. Exactly. However, that's marked really the end of the partying for Henry. Catherine noted that for some time afterwards they experienced continual feasting. And this was largely because Henry VIII, when it came to governance, again like Edward IV, was rather lazy. Right. Didn't have any interest at all in the fine details of government and preferred to just continue having lots of fun with feasting, jousting, sport and music. It's looking good. So he just leaves the business of government to the old men of the council that yeah. worked for Henry VII. Okay. So what Henry does, as we said, he keeps on partying. He even, in his most famous song that he wrote, Pastime with Good Company, writes this sort of praise of one who looks for the the leisure and entertainment as opposed to idleness and vice so he's actually just championing the idler just I, having I'd fun all the time I'd argue though that his most famous piece was Greensleeves obviously did he not well that's the little myth that we're going to bust there Henry VIII didn't write Greensleeves Greensleeves is an Italian style of music that didn't come into England until the reign of Elizabeth Right. so it couldn't have been done by Henry VIII Rex fact fact um, however he does have some more um, noble Interests. He's very interested in theology. Martin Luther has launched his attack on the Catholic Church, pinning his church of worms and all that. Yeah, yeah onto the uh, door of the church. So in 1521, Henry writes a polemic entitled "Defence of the Seven Sacraments Against Luther," in which he argues in favour of things such as the absolute right of the papacy and the Catholic Church to rule over all other countries. Oh dear. For this, 1524, the Pope names him Defender of the Faith, which he's very happy about. And we still use today. We do. It's not technically, when the Pope gave it, a term which could be succeeded after the person, but in 1544 they just decided that yeah. it would be anyway. Okay. He's also very excited about foreign affairs and diplomacy. It's his real interest where he actually does take quite a strong, active role. Yeah. Um, in particular, this period is dominated by the rivalry of three kings. We've got Henry in England... Francis I in France and Charles V of Spain and they're all about the same age all come to the throne at roughly the same time and there's this ongoing manoeuvring and balance for power Mm. in Europe however Henry although he's not that interested in government he does want people to be doing what he's doing and the old councillors are a bit conservative being relics of Henry VII so Henry VIII finds himself someone that will do his bidding for him and this man is Thomas Wolsey He's the son of a Norfolk butcher, rose through the ranks, comes to Henry's attention, and then rises very, very quickly. So he becomes Archbishop of York in 1514. He's then made a cardinal, Cardinal Wolsey, and then Chancellor in 1515. And Chancellor is kind of like a Prime Minister, the main yeah, person doing Jeff, stuff. Yeah. And from about 1519 to 1529, Wolsey is completely dominant in English affairs. The only disturbances in this period, really, are um, there's a rebellion in East Anglia against heavy taxations in 1525, a thing called the Amicable Grant, and also in 1521, the execution of the Duke of Buckingham for treason. Which one was he? His, his, his father said he'd be famous, didn't he? Yeah, because his father had been um, allied with Richard III and then rebelled against him right, and yeah, got executed. Yeah. Buckingham had similar talks of potentially killing Henry and becoming king for himself, or at least reported talks. 
was Which enough, was enough yeah. for him to yeah. be bumped off. However, although Henry's having a great time, all is not quite well, because Henry doesn't have an heir to the throne. On the 1st of January 1511, just two years into his reign, a son was born, Henry Duke of Cornwall. There were huge celebrations at court, jousting and everything all going on, but on the 23rd of February he died, almost two months old. No more male sons follow, so of six pregnancies for Catherine of Aragon, only one of them has a successful child, and that is a girl called Mary. Right. And okay. if we remember, the only time previously when a girl has been due to inherit the throne was in 1135 when we had Stephen and Matilda, yeah. which led to the anarchy, a civil war. Mm. We just had the Wars of the Roses, so Henry's a bit sensitive about the idea of a girl, woman, becoming queen. Uh, he does, however, know that he's capable of siring healthy sons because he has a mistress, Elizabeth Blunt, and by her he has a son called Henry Fitzroy. I did not know this. He had a, an illegitimate son, and he's actually considered making him his legal heir. Such was his desire. Sadly, Henry Fitzroy died in 1536, sometime later, but he was about 17 at this stage, so there was a good while that he had a son, potentially, that was going to become king. But this means that he knows that he can have sons, so obviously it must be something Mm. wrong with Catherine. Catherine, by this stage, into her 40s, because she's seven years older than Henry, unlikely to conceive again. And Henry thinks he knows the reason for their problems, and it's to be found in Leviticus. Namely, that it's unlawful for a man to marry his brother's widow. The implication being that they won't have any children, or, in this case, male children. So Henry thinks it's divine retribution, he shouldn't have married her, and now they can't have any sons. Right. What's more, he's also fallen in love with somebody else. Oh, Henry. Anne Boleyn. Right. She's born about 1500, and um, niece of the Duke of Norfolk. Spends a lot of her time at the French court in her early days, so she's a lot more sophisticated, a lot more fashionable, and she's also got a much more wit than the other English ladies, so she stands out Mm. at court. From about 1526, Henry falls deeply in love with her, wants to have her as a mistress, like he'd done with her sister Mary Boleyn beforehand. But Anne Boleyn completely changes history by refusing to give in to Henry unless he marries her. And of course, Henry is only more arduous once mm. she refuses, mm. so he wants it even more. So he decides his desperation for a son, his fear over the first marriage being illegal, his infatuation with Anne Boleyn, he wants a divorce, or rather an annulment, right. so that he can marry Anne Boleyn. But there are some obstacles in the way. Firstly, there's Catherine of Aragon. She's unwilling to give up without a fight, argues that her marriage to Prince Arthur had never been consummated, so was therefore invalid and didn't actually apply, so her marriage to Henry was legal. And she writes to Charles V of Spain, who is her nephew, and the Pope, saying, come on guys, give me some help here. Secondly, and most importantly, Charles V of Spain has just uh, taken control of Rome. Oh, I thought the Pope was there. Pope is there, and Charles has gone in and bossed it. Oh, right. So the Pope is now pretty much under the thumb of Spain. The uh, upshot of this is that the nephew of Catherine of Aragon is in control of the Pope Mm. and Henry needs the Pope to give him an annulment which obviously Charles V of Spain isn't going to let him do so papacy's in a bit of bother trying to balance things out what they do is they send a man called Cardinal Campaggio to England in 1528 where he's going to set up a commission to decide on the matter the king's great matter as it becomes known they meet at Blackfriars in 1529 
but despite quite a lot of drama, it's actually a complete waste of time because Campaggio has been told by the Pope to basically just procrastinate and they're hoping that somebody will die and sort the problem out, whether yeah. that be Henry, Catherine, Anne, whoever. They yeah. don't want to actually make Sometimes a decision. Taken those days, I suppose. But nobody does die and uh, nothing is concluded. And what this means is that for Cardinal Wolsey, who Henry has entrusted as his chief man to sort it out, he's tried negotiating desperately, but he hasn't managed to secure the annulment and he loses Henry's confidence. It's never a good thing. Never a good thing. Yeah. Anne Boleyn starts to see him as an, as an obstacle, and of course she's very much got Henry's ear. Wolsey, as a low-born man who's come to power, has got a lot of enemies at court. So they take this opportunity to bring him down, and he's removed as Chancellor in 1530. Tries uh, to plot his way back by getting Anne Boleyn sent away by writing to Catherine of Aragon and the Pope, trying to get some kind of plot together. But his letters soon get found out, and he's arrested for treason. But dies en route to his trial. Lucky devil. And some people start to give him some new ideas of how he can be right. Firstly, Anne Boleyn promotes some of the new religious, i.e. Protestant, ideas to Henry. And there's a man, William Tyndale, who wrote something called The Obedience of a Christian Man, which argued that the king, rather than the pope, is the one that has no superior on earth, i.e. the king is God's representative, yep. which means he can do whatever he wants. And Henry, as you might expect, rather likes this interpretation and declares that this is the book for me and all kings to read. And there are two other men who have... He declares this is the book for me? Yes. This is the book for me! That's the review on the back. (laughs) Henry VIII. I love that. Great stuff. (laughs) And two other men who influenced him, Thomas Cromwell, uh, another low-born man, son of a blacksmith, a former mercenary soldier, but rises up again, um, helped by Thomas Wolsey, and also Thomas Cranmer, who is the Boleyn family chaplain, and like Cromwell, a believer in the new faith. So this sort of Protestant triumvirate of Anne Boleyn, Cromwell and Cranmer encourage Henry, and he starts to see himself as God's representative on earth, himself as head of the church, and thus the Pope is increasingly irrelevant in Henry's eyes. So they sort it all out. Cromwell gets support from Parliament by um, playing off their opposition to the church and some of the control the church has got over secular affairs. This puts pressures on the bishops, who also have to give in and throw their weight and support behind Henry. Cranmer becomes Archbishop of Canterbury when the previous incumbent dies, and he tries the great matter, and surprise, surprise, it turns out Henry was right all along. His marriage to Catherine of Alcum is invalid. Anne Boleyn, he marries in 1533, and that's completely okay. So in 1534, the act of supremacy, Henry declares himself the supreme head on earth of the Church of England and inferior only to God. In other words, the English Church is breaking away from Rome and the Catholic Church, mm. for which the Pope excommunicates Henry and Cranmer. But he doesn't care. But he doesn't, doesn't care, care because it's relevant. Yeah. And Anne um, is has her coronation. She becomes Queen Anne. It takes place in. Uh, but there's little enthusiasm from the crowd. Anne notes people aren't too happy about it. Is this because they don't like her, or the fact that they want to be Catholic? It's the fact that they don't like her and that they really, really, really did like Catherine of Aragon, so they still see right. Catherine, who is still alive, as the legitimate queen. And they don't really care what their state religion is? Or they haven't, that hasn't quite seeped in yet, they don't quite know the consequences yet, but Henry decides this can't be done. So 1534, there's the Act of Succession, whereby all subjects are required to make an oath where they acknowledge Henry as the head of the church, yeah. and they acknowledge Anne as the legitimate queen, and thus Catherine and... Lady Mary, his daughter, is illegitimate. Who's made to do that? 
everybody. All, all citizens. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it goes down necessarily like nobles, peasants, but the nobles, the lay, yeah. and the Piscopy. Right. Sort of chaps. Everybody does, except for Catherine of Aragon and Lady Mary, who are able to just not do it, but keep stum. And also a Bishop Fisher, who's this highly respected man across Europe, and Sir Thomas More, who had been Chancellor and great friend of Henry, one of the great minds of the age. So 1535, Fisher and More, to the shock of Europe, are executed for treason. And unfortunately, having spent all of that effort to get his marriage to Anne Boleyn, when he does marry her, he decides he'd rather he hadn't. (laughs) Because, uh, various reasons for marital strife. Firstly, um, she was actually pregnant when they married in 1533, probably because she tried to hurry the whole process up a bit. So he had to make the son that would obviously follow legitimate. Unfortunately, the son was called Elizabeth. Oh, no, it's a boy without a winkle. Indeed. (laughs) Very good. So... That's not what he wanted. And he's a bit unhappy about this, but he thinks surely more sons will come, but they don't. No more children. Uh-oh. Just a girl, Uh-oh. which is what he had already. Now, Anne Boleyn had been the perfect mistress in many ways, toying and playing with him, but as a wife, that doesn't work so well. Mm. She's meant to be more submissive and play along to what mm. Henry wants, but she doesn't. She stays exactly the same. She's still as fiery and as witty and biting as she was before. And Henry does not like it, so they have quite a tempestuous relationship. And then in 1536, after hearing about um, an accident Henry had while jousting, where it was feared that he could die, she miscarries the son. Oh, blimey, girl. Which obviously Henry blames on her. (laughs) So Henry starts talking about having been seduced by witchcraft, saying that Anne isn't capable of bearing sons. Again, she's got lots of enemies at court, people that don't like her, that were loyal to Catherine. They start accusing her of adultery with various people, noblemen, the court musician Mark Smeaton, even her own brother, George Boleyn, Lord Rochford. Um, but we're, I take it we're not to believe any of these. Well, historical consensus says that the accusations aren't true. It may be possible that it's conceivable that Henry might have thought that they were true. Because Anne has a slightly flirtatious nature in court. But it's, it was just useful that... Yeah. It's a set-up job, basically. But they're all found guilty, with the exception of Sir Thomas Wyatt, a poet, who ironically was the only one that had had a relationship with Anne Boleyn but before the oh, marriage. Right. But he was friends with Cromwell, so he yeah. got let off. All of the men get executed, and then on the 19th of May, 1536, Anne Boleyn, the Queen of England, is beheaded by a skilled French swordsman, because the last act of romantic gesture, Henry paid a hefty price to get a skilled man to come over from France and do the deed. Oh, that's lovely, isn't it? It is nice. It's a nice touch. (laughs) Chocolates on the pillow on her last night. (laughs) So, Anne Boleyn is gone, and on the day that she is executed, Henry gets a special dispensation to marry somebody else. Jane Seymour, wife number three, is about 25 years old um, at the time, said to have been fairly plain-looking and quite conservative in nature, Henry's fallen in love with her before Anne's end. It wouldn't. It wouldn't bode well. I mean, if if my girlfriend was the queen and she just chopped the head off her last fella, no, it's not my cup of tea. Wouldn't feel comfortable. About no, that. I wouldn't. No. Anyway, things get off to quite a good start. Uh, Jane Seymour brings Lady Mary, Henry's first daughter, back to court, helps her to be restored to Henry's um, affections. Mm. Although only once Mary has acknowledged that she is an illegitimate bastard. Oh, but so after that, yeah. she's back. He's got. He's such a lovely bloke. We also then have the dissolution of the monasteries. So this is where and the great and small monastic houses all across England are to be surveyed, 
checked out for abuses and in practice pretty much looted, pillaged and knocked down. Mm. However, this isn't very popular with a lot of people, particularly in the north of England where they really care about their monasteries, it's part of their community life for centuries mm. and it's what they believe in. So is initially there's a rebellion in Lincolnshire, about 20,000 men who march on Lincoln, I think taken hold of the cathedral, but as soon as the Duke of Suffolk comes up with an army they all mm. head off and the leaders get rounded up and executed. But much more damaging is an uprising that takes place in Yorkshire led by a lawyer called Robert Usk. Uh, yes, I know this one. Yep. So he gets um, several thousand men, about 9,000. They march on York where they're allowed in, unopposed. So they've effectively taken the city of York. They march all the way south to Doncaster where they've joined by more and more people. So they have about 40,000 men mm. in this rebellion. The Norfolk, Duke of Norfolk, was sent up to deal with this, but he's only got about 9,000 troops or so. So this army is capable of going to London and pretty much bringing Henry down. And, and but... So he's unpopular in the north, but the, he still has support in the south. He still has support of noblemen. Oh, yeah, still got noble support. And this is the thing, he isn't actually unpopular in the north. They think it's all the fault of Thomas Cromwell and Cranmer, evil advisers. And they're convinced that once they put their case to Henry as the good and just king, he will find in their favour. Oh, right. right. So they don't want to march on London. And it's crucial, because if they had wanted to, they probably could have done. Yeah. But they don't. Okay. And instead, they agree to terms... Um, but 1537, early the next year, nothing's been done. A few isolated uprisings take place. Henry sends in the troops, rounds up all the leaders, asks, and lots of other people executed. It's brutally put down, and there's no chance of it uprising again. Right. Good. <laughs> On a jolly note, yeah. things take a really big, smiley turn for the better for Henry. On the 12th of October, 1537, Jane Seymour gives birth to a healthy son. Hey, the son is called Edward. Can't believe her luck. Huge celebrations, but they're cut short when tragically 12 days later, Jane Seymour dies of a postnatal fever. Oh, crumb. Very common for the time, sadly. It's very dangerous giving birth in due to time. Henry is absolutely devastated, convinced now he's got the son that Jane Seymour is the perfect wife. Watch more, he's died before he got fed up with her, so that puts her on an even higher pedestal. He wears black for three months and doesn't remarry for another three years. Crikey. How old is he at this point? Well, at this point, in 1537, he's like 46. So he's getting on. He is getting on, but he's not done with the wives yet. He moves on to wife mm. number four, Anne of Cleves. The background for this, 1538 to 40, England was increasingly isolated. The, the Pope had put forward a papal bull legitimising the deposition of Henry. What's more, France and Spain have signed a ten-year peace treaty. So England's looking a little bit dodgy, and they need allies. And Cromwell is particularly keen to advance the reforms and get a Protestant ally. So they decide on Cleves, because Anne of Cleves is the daughter of the Protestant Duke of Cleves, so it's a potentially good alliance, and Henry sees some flattering portraits from Hans Holbein, good reports from his ambassadors, he agrees to it. Mm. And then he gets quite excited about it. So at Rochester, while she's making her way to London, Henry's so excited that he decides to rush off and meet her before she gets to London. Yeah, it's quite enthusiastic about things, isn't he? He, just he, he does, and he away. really plays up to it. So there's this old chivalric tradition of um, a man in disguise meeting the woman. They don't know... She doesn't know who he is, but they fall in love anyway, such is the beauty of the romance. Right. And, of course, now it's a sort of a little play-acting that they would do where they both know the score, she knows who he is, she knows what's going on, plays along, and it's lovely. Okay. 
Unfortunately, she neither recognises him nor the tradition, <laughs> and is much more interested in the bull baiting which she can see from the window in her room. Mm. And she then recoils when he tries to embrace her, because she's thinking, who the hell is this yeah. big old ugly man that's yeah. trying to force himself upon me? Until, of course, she realises that it's Henry. And Henry's ego, suitably bruised and battered, isn't very happy about this. So he storms off complaining that she was nothing so fair as hath been reported, and that I like her not. But he's pretty grumpy. Is he? So let me get this right. He doesn't. He's not doing an American. He's not like I like her not. Well, maybe, maybe that I think he is. quote has been I, misread on I think subsequent TV programs. Yeah. So Henry decides he doesn't want to get married, and he tells Cromwell to fix it. Unfortunately, Cromwell points out that the Cleves duchy might be a bit offended if they decide not to marry her because Henry thinks she's ugly. She almost certainly wasn't ugly, it should be pointed out. The Flanders mare slur is an 18th century invention. Right. So it's probably just that Henry was grumpy. Yeah. yeah. Didn't recognise him. So they have to marry, but it wasn't consummated, which means it hasn't been properly fixed mm. as a marriage. Yeah. And they argue that she was pre-contracted to another. And so, to Henry's great pleasure, Anne of Cleves agrees to an annulment. And Henry's so pleased with her that she plays along so nicely that he gives her names her as his sister, she receives numerous houses and riches, outlives him and all of his other wives, and sort of does fairly well for herself. He would, though, after knowing what he does to his wives. Well, yeah. exactly. She's yeah. probably just relieved that he didn't want to cut her head off. Yeah. However, not everybody gets out of this alive. Cromwell has lost Henry's confidence, and we all know what that means. Yeah. Enemies at court again, like Wolsey before, they plot his downfall. He's made the Earl of Essex quite confusingly because soon after that he gets arrested at council, declared a traitor and executed. What? Hang on. What the, it, He's declared a traitor for treasonable heresy. Well, how, how is he heretical? He's they claim that he's too advanced because although he's sort of doing the reformist stuff, it's not fully done Protestant right. or Anabaptist, yeah. as it's called. So they accuse him of a heresy of being too far right. down the line. And but Henry's he's lost his confidence and yeah. just ticks it off. But he made him Earl of Essex first? Yeah. He's really... <laughs> Despite the fact that Cromwell sent him a, le a letter at the end begging mercy, mercy, mercy. But he doesn't get it. No. Typically also, Henry regrets it afterwards and blames it on everybody else for tricking him into it. God, he's his own worst enemy, this chap. He is. However, he's more than ready to move on again to wife number five, and this time it's Catherine Howard. This is another niece of the Duke of Norfolk, um, and thus a cousin of Anne Boleyn. Um, the Conservatives and sort of Catholics at court are now on the rise. So we've seen Cromwell fall, Anne Boleyn fall. The Conservative people are starting to get their power back, and Norfolk wants to really get this in place by having the King marry his niece. So his 17-year-old, probably, niece, Catherine Howard, is put dangled in front of Henry, his tasty bait, mm. and Henry ta uh, takes the bait. So she catches his eye, and in 1540, not long after the annulment of Man of Cleves, he gets married to his new wife. Right. And he's, again, he gets all excited, very happy about it, besotted with her, dubs her his rose without a thorn, mm. which turns out not to be quite so accurate, because unfortunately Catherine had been brought up in the household of her stepmother, where discipline was very scant. So she'd had quite a licentious life, already had an affair with a man called Francis Derham, and now married to Henry... 
she starts an affair with his favourite courtier, Thomas Culpepper. Oh, this is just stupid, then. Secret trusts are being arranged by Lady Rochford, the widow of uh, George Boleyn. Even when they go, Henry goes on a tour of the North in the 1540s to get their mm. apologies for the whole pilgrimage of grace stuff. And they're having affairs as they're moving around from palace to palace. God, that'd be so dangerous. Very dangerous indeed, because Thomas Cranmer, a reformist, not a conservative, is made aware of, not initially of the affair, but of her dalliance with Derham previously, mm. which could invalidate the marriage if they'd been pre-contracted to each other. So he looks into it, even though Henry convinced it can't be true, and if Catherine at this stage had admitted that she was pre-contracted to marry Derham, her marriage to Henry would have been invalidated and she would have got off alive. Mm. However, she claims that Derham forced himself upon her, and in response to this charge, Derham says, well, you should be checking out what she's been doing with Thomas Culpepper. So Cranmer checks out what she's been doing with Thomas Culpepper, and now, of course, Catherine has had an affair whilst queen, which is treason. Crumbs. Indeed. So Henry, devastated when he finds out the news, breaks down in tears and then starts bemoaning his ill luck with wives and feels very sorry for himself. And then Derham, Culpepper, Lady Rochford and Catherine herself all executed in 1542. Yeah, that was good. That's going to happen, really. Yeah, there's been lot, a lot less sympathy for yeah. Catherine Howard than for Anne Boleyn, it's mm. probably fair to say. But remember, she's so young. Yeah, but, you know... She knows what happened to the others. Unwise. Yeah. But that's not it, of course. Wife number six. Here we go. Catherine Parr. Um, she's twice widowed already by this stage and 31 years old, established herself at the court of Lady Mary in 1543 and caught Henry's eye. And then he decides to marry her. Well, it was unintentional because she was in love with the roguish uh, Thomas Seymour, who was one of the brothers of Jane Seymour. Um, and Henry sends him off to Brussels. Just right. to get him out of the yeah, way. Yeah. And look marries. at me, look at me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he marries uh, Catherine Parr, who's a very talented woman, multilingual, had her own work published, a translation, which is a mm. first for an English queen, restored Mary and Elizabeth to court, and, crucially, in 1544, the Act of Succession. So Mary and Elizabeth are once again allowed to inherit the throne, if Edward doesn't have any children. Mm. And she rules effectively as regent uh, in 1544 when Henry goes off on campaign in France. However, as ever, there's plots afoot at court yeah. and she's made herself some enemies because Catherine Parr is a very strong religious reformer it, it, in the Protestant yeah, vein. Yeah, okay. So the Conservatives, the Catholics don't like this. In particular, the Bishop of Winchester, Bishop Gardner, who's kind of one of the chief uh, Catholics at court. How, how come there's still Catholics at court? Well, the problem is that Henry, although he's done these reforms, he's not fully Protestant. We'll see this later. He doesn't fully embrace Protestantism, and he doesn't fully abandon Catholicism. So he's kind of in the middle, which means that you can get rival people at court who are trying to influence him. So he varies in terms mm. of who he supports and which side he veers to a little bit more. And at these years, he's starting to veer a little bit more to the Catholic side and the Conservatives. And he starts to get irritated with Catherine Parr when she debates religious matters with him. Gardner sees his opportunity, draws up an arrest warrant for her, um, claiming that she has an heretical library, but somebody tells Catherine about this, gives her warning. So she takes to her bed, claiming to be mortally ill. So Henry comes along to see her to find out what's wrong. And then she gets on her knees right before him and apologises, says that she was only debating religious matters to take his mind off his dodgy leg and to learn from his wisdom. 
wasn't because she was trying to change his mind. Mm. Henry, suitably appeased, says, well, good, we're the best of friends again, and cancels the arrest warrant. Except he doesn't actually bother to tell anybody who's cancelled it, so the next day when somebody comes along to arrest her, he shouts at them and gives them a clip round the ear and sends them off, very confused. <laughs> and Catherine's going, what was that one? Nothing, don't worry. <laughs> Possible that he was just playing his own little game, yeah. enjoying it all. However, there is lots of conflict at court, as we can see, and it's clear now that Henry's not going to live much longer, and Prince Edward is not going to have reached his majority by the time Henry dies. So we've got the Conservatives at court, like Norfolk and Gardner, competing with the Reformists, like Cranmer, um, the Earl of Hertford, who is um, Edward Seymour, and Catherine Parr herself. They're trying to get dominance. The Conservatives um, rather lose their footing in 1546. Gardner gets dismissed from court. Norfolk gets arrested treason so the protestants and reformers have got the upper hand but it's the end i'm afraid of uh, the jolly man henry the eighth previously had really good health no sign of the tuberculosis which killed other tudors like henry the seventh prince arthur etc he survived smallpox in 1514 numerous bouts of malaria from 1521 malaria malaria because lots of swamps in England uh, at this time, so yeah. obviously lots of things flying yeah. around mosquitoes. Um, however, he suffers his health as the years go on. In 1524, he's a jousting accident, leaving him with recurrent migraines. 1536, that jousting injury where his life was thought to be in danger. How old was he in 1536? Um, he is 45. Opens up an old ulcerous leg wound. Ooh. And this never heals, so he's never able to exercise again. And it gets worse and worse and worse. 1538, the ulcer blocked the flow of blood cause a clot on his lungs so he's left unable to speak and apparently going black in the face through pain everybody thought he was going to die but he pulls through but it keeps on coming back worse and worse more and more regularly the ulcer oozes pus emits a foul stench oh chop it off all rather horrible Shapwe a Spanish ambassador described him as having the worst legs in the world <laughs> the worst legs that sounds like a heat sometimes <laughs> Uh, he's also becomes rather obese. He's unable to exercise after that accident in 1536. After Jane Seymour's death, he binges on red wine and red meats. He doesn't eat vegetables because he believed, well, Tudors believe that they caused melancholy and wind. And uh, also raw fruit, they thought, caused fevers, so he's not really having any roughage. That's bizarre. It is. And rather wrong. Yeah. So he ends up with a 54-inch waist and a 57-inch chest weighing about 28 stone. God, that's Olympic fat. It is. He has to be carried around on a special chair, <laughs> and he's also suffering from failing eyesight and, with that diet, constipation. Yeah. So, he's clearly on his last legs, and the early hours <laughs> of the 28th of January, his worst legs, last legs, he slips into a coma, said to have gripped Cranmer's hand when asked to make a sign that he put his trust in the mercy of Christ, i.e. gripping, saying yes. And then shortly after that, age 55, he dies. So that is the reign of Henry VIII, but now we must review him and see how well he stacks up. The Rex Factor. Indeed. Battleliness! So, on the good front, 1513, French campaign, just four years into his reign, he invades France. For what end? Uh, just fun. Fun, yeah. yeah. Um, Battle of the Spurs, the English cavalry take the French army by um, surprise, force them into flight without even fighting. It's called Battle of the Spurs because the French were said to have used their spurs on their heels more than their swords. 
funny. It's funny indeed. And it's <laughs> the first English victory on French soil, probably since the 1430s, going back to the Duke of Bedford. Really? So it's a long time since England has really done anything notable in France. Right. And they go on from that to capture the towns of Terouanne and Tournai. So he's made a good start. Yeah, but it's just, but still just for, for the funnies. I suppose it all was. 1544, when he next goes back to France, he leaves it quite a while. <laughs> Um, he leads 40,000 troops back into France, besieges the heavily fortified town Boulogne. Um, high and low parts of the town fall quite soon to heavy bombardment, and then the old tactic undermining the castle walls, bring it down, castle surrenders, and Henry marches in, is granted the keys, and it's triumph. Captain right. Boulogne. Well done, Henry. Some victories in France. We also have some important military developments in this period. Lots of threats, as we know, France and Spain, there's potential of invasion. Scotland is always a perennial nuisance. So Henry, fearing all of this, goes on a massive programme of building forts or little castles all yeah, along the coast. Yeah, gun emplacement type things. Yeah, sort of device forts. So 1539, 1544, and he uses quite skilful cartography to plan mm. where exactly is the best places all yeah. along to actually do it. And sort of uh, on either side of rivers to get a um, crossfire that mm. wouldn't shoot each other. It's very clever. It's very clever. Yeah. And he's very much involved in that and the new sort of science and maps and mm. all these things. He also is very important as one of the forefathers of the Royal Navy. That's a big plus point. He inherits only a handful of proper warships, but by the end of his reign has about 50. Right. And there's a great innovation in ships being able to carry heavy guns broadside. Because what they're able to do is they are mounted to the ship on either side, so they're properly balanced, and they fire through little ports. Yeah. So the ship's a bit more balanced, and it's more steady, and it's just better for the warfare. And the Mary Rose sinks. Well, the Mary Rose, of course, sinks, and it sinks in the Battle of the Solent in 1545. So after Henry taking Boulogne, Francis I of France decides to retaliate and thinks, well, I'll capture an English town, mm. and then we'll partly for each other. So they send a huge fleet, about 200 ships with 30,000 soldiers, bigger than the Spanish Armada. Really? Yep. And gets to about the Isle of Wight, but they're sort of pushed back off there. And then there's rather sort of inconclusive toing and froing, and eventually they go home and able to make any headway. You don't hear about that one. But it's, that's because it's overshadowed by the fact that the Mary Rose, not by French military triumph but just a freak gust of wind that pushed the ship over the Mary Rose his great beloved warship sinks and it loses sort of about sort of 400 odd mm, people and only about yeah. 30 survive his, his life is full of tragedy I mean he doesn't help himself and he does kill a lot of them himself <laughs> yes but there is loss all the way through yes and um, also England this period can be said to a certain extent to have more diplomatic clout because it's actually a very small, well, it still is a very small country, but at this stage, France's population is about six times larger than England. Wow. Spain's income is seven times larger. Yeah. So England's small fry in that sense, but they're able to be big boys on the big stage. Yeah. And this is started off by Wolsey very much at the start. He organises um, the Treaty of Perpetual Peace in 1518, where France, Spain, 20 other nations agree to infinite, never-ending peace. Well, is this because they've got clout, but not because they uh, have any special, particularly special weapons like the longbow anymore, mm. although they do use them, but because they're the third player between two mm. powerful people, yeah. like Liberal Democrats. Indeed, <laughs> yes. But it's a hung parliament, so they're able to use their okay. influence more than they had previously. 
And also, Henry and Francis I meet at the very famous the Field of Cloth of Gold, this grand summit um, with a huge fake palace and wine coming out of fountain and all sorts of things. So there are lots of big events. Henry VIII, very much one of the big boys on the European stage. Right. So that's the positive, but there's also a lot of negative battliness in Henry VIII. Okay. The 1513 campaign, the Battle of the Spurs, in reality, it's a very minor skirmish. It doesn't actually have any real impact. It's just because they happened upon the French by surprise and they ran off. And what's more, it happened so suddenly that Henry wasn't actually involved in it. He was somewhere at the back, not looking, and before he had a chance, it had all finished. Yeah. Right. So he wasn't actually in that great charge. Yeah. He was just like, what? What? Oh. Oh. (laughs) I was here. Yeah. (laughs) So as you say, it doesn't really achieve very much. The major military triumph for Henry VIII in this reign is the Battle of Flodden. And this is where James IV, King of Scotland, invades England, but he, lots of his major nobles, are all killed in the battle, and it's a complete rout for the Scots. James IV, the last British king to die in battle. Richard III was the last English one. Oh, right, yeah. James IV, the last British one. But James got it as well, then. He died on the battlefield as well, Yeah, James IV did of Scotland, yeah. But, of course, again, it's in 1513, while Henry is looking the other way while the Battle of Spurs is going on, that is when the Battle of Flodden happens, so Henry isn't there again. It's the great battle, and he's Mm. in France. So instead, the Duke of Norfolk, or the soon-to-be Duke of Norfolk, Mm. thanks to his victory, is the general that leads the victory. And it's Catherine of Aragon, who is actually regent, and she's organised three armies... So she's got Norfolk's one and then two in backup in case Norfolk loses. She's actually at the head of one of these armies and she rides in front of them in full armour and addresses them whilst, whilst pregnant. And then afterwards writes to Henry, sends him the blooded coat of James IV, really pleased with it, and said that apparently she would have sent his body, but apparently the English lords were a bit squeamish about it. So she's got pretty She's strong iron will Cromwell said of her if not for her sex she could have defied all the heroes of history because she was a really strong strong woman and she nearly divorced her yeah but Henry again he isn't there why doesn't he take this opportunity then and become king of Scotland well we'll come to that okay. actually we'll come to that uh, before we get there we talked just now about the diplomatic clout but in reality he is always as you said the liberal democrats <laughs> of um, the three-party um, balance of power. He always loses. Yeah. He doesn't get invaded, but he always loses out in his endeavours. Charles V in 1519 is elected Holy Roman Emperor. All yeah. three of them went for it. And Henry VIII could have got it earlier. He was offered it. Really? He was offered it by the previous incumbent. Um, but they never thought it was realistic for what Especially they'd have to do for him. what he does in the future. Indeed. Um... Whenever he invades France, it never comes to anything because Spain always make peace with France and that undermines anything Henry can do. Because actually, in 1525, Francis I at the Battle of Pavia was captured by the Spanish. And Henry got all excited, thought, yes, this is it, we've got the King of France, we could split France between England and Spain, are you with me? And Charles says, actually, no, it's probably better just to make peace with France instead. So they're constantly so stabbing him in the back. Constantly stabbing in the back. Basically, as soon as they make a peace treaty, as soon as they walk out of the room, it's pretty much dead. Back to normal. Yeah. That must have been really frustrating. But they did, France and Spain didn't get on either. Oh, yeah, they did it to each other as well. So no one's getting the up hand here, really. Well, except Spain, who's got control of the Pope. Yes, good point. Mm. And 
You could argue that Henry actually has his opportunities in France. In 1522, the Duke of Suffolk, Charles Brandon, got within 50 miles of Paris in one advance. But Henry VIII hadn't committed all of his troops, he hadn't committed himself, so that when bad weather and disease starts coming, Suffolk has to withdraw, because mm. he doesn't have the support. Likewise, 1525, when Francis has been captured, you think Henry V, the slightest whiff of an opportunity, and he would have just stormed off with the mm. biggest army he could possibly muster. Henry, he likes the idea of it, but he never really fully commits to it. Mm. And even at the Field of Cloth of Gold in 1520, he loses at wrestling to Francis I. Well, that's that's the icing on the cake. He loses He's quite a bad loser as well. <laughs> yeah, I bet. To Francis I of France? Yeah. Right. Who may have cheated a little bit by I tripping imagine. him up, apparently, but he wasn't happy about it. But Henry's quite a big bloke. Well, so is Francis. Yeah. And they're both young men. Yeah. But, as you said, what about the opportunities in France? In 1540s, um, of course, Henry's big thing was the Battle of Boulogne. And what's more, in 1542, a couple of years earlier, Duke of Norfolk led a failed raid um, into Scotland, but then they fo England followed it back with a massive victory at Solway Moss. And the news of this reached the next Scottish king, James V, and he died, apparently devastated by the news. And he left his daughter, Mary, Queen of Scots, who was at that stage six days old. Now, if Henry had gone in with a massive army, he could have either conquered France, or he could have taken... He conquered Scotland. Uh, sorry, Scotland, yeah. yes. Conquered Scotland, or he could have taken hold of Mary, Queen of Scots, brought her to England, and then made sure that she and Edward, when they reached their majorities, marry, they and we have an active union. Yes. But he doesn't bother. Oh, Henry... So, we had some successes, uh, but are they really that great? No, basically. Well, we uh, had it all up. I mean, did we have some successes? I mean, I know before we've we've got we've tried this path before where it it wasn't specifically them on the battle, but it was under his yeah. reign. But uh, even under his reign, you got Boulogne, fine. I, the only place I'm going to give him points because the rest of them are really just skirmishes, mm. and where they're where they're not skirmishes, where they are potential game changers like Scotland, uh, he doesn't take advantage of them. So I'm going to give him four points for the navy. Yeah, I think that's fair. Actually, I don't think he deserves no. much more than that. His victories aren't all that, and they're probably due to somebody else anyway. So that's an eight for battliness. Not a good start. Not a good start, Henners. Scandal. Well, he's going to do a bit better here. He be probably will rack up a couple of points, I'd say. We don't even need to spend a long time debating this, really. I mean, of course, we've got the six wives. Check. Most notorious aspect of the reign. Um, we've got the divorce. Yeah. Treats Catherine of Aragon uh, terribly. Uh, the Reformation, of course, That's from massive. that. That's massive. That on its own. Yeah. The break with Rome. Yeah. A completely new religious order. The dissolution of the monasteries. The Catholic and sort of papal... Um, rule in England goes back to 664 and the Whitby Synod, which we covered in backgroundy stuff. That's <laughs> how long yeah. this has been unquestioned. Yeah. And Henry... Maybe a thousand years. A thousand years, and Henry, on a whim, wants his divorce, gets rid of it. Yeah, I mean, that would... It might be worth mega points, but then, I suppose... We have to take everything into, else into account. We, everything else into account. We've got all the executions. He's it's basically a tyranny. He executes more nobles than anyone before or since. Two of his wives. Two wives killed. Such that a, few, a, a prospective wife, the Duchess of Milan, refused um, the potential, saying, "If I had two heads, one should be at the head of uh, the King of England's disposal." Oh, so it blackens his reputation in Europe. 
kills off various rivals. Richard de la Pole, grandson of Richard III, had been imprisoned by Henry VII on the promise of not killing him, but 1513, before he goes to France, Henry just bumps him off anyway. The Duke of Buckingham in 1521. Um, the Earl of Surrey in 1546. Some of his chief ministers, Thomas More, one of the great men of the age. Yeah. Thomas Cromwell, his most loyal servant. These are good eggs, too. There are even near misses. Wolsey, in 1530, probably would have been executed if he hadn't died mm. on the way to the trial. The Duke of Norfolk was due to be executed on the 28th of January, 1547. He is only saved because Henry dies in the early hours of that day. And then, then that's void? Then he's left in prison for the rest of the reign, and then he gets let out under Mary. So he has an incredibly lucky escape. Yeah, blimey. But he was going to get killed. And there are others. Fisher, a 67-year-old niece of Edward IV, Margaret Pole. This is, yeah. As Thomas Wyatt said, around the throne a thunder rolls. Mm. He is also, of course, this great big grotesque physical monster. <laughs> well, is there anything that he's got going for him? He doesn't have as many mistresses as you might think. Only two that are confirmed, maybe a few others. He doesn't need mistresses, he just kills his well, wife. Well, it's only wife, but far fewer than you, he has opportunities. He's not the sex-crazed beast that he's sometimes portrayed as. Indeed, he's actually a little bit of a prude. He doesn't like outward displays of wanton behaviour at court. And in many ways, he's just an old romantic. <laughs> Five out of the six wives he marries for love, i.e. he falls in love with them and marries them, uh, which is very unusual for the time, only again Edward IV, but we've seen this previously. And it's a very modern attitude. Once he falls out of love, he doesn't just take on mistresses and no, he deal just with kills them. them. He just gets rid of them. Yeah. Well, if that's it. That's all I've got in defence. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm quite surprised I haven't got anything else, really. I'm, it's got to be 10. It's a massive, massive 10. That's 20 for scandal. Subjectivity. Well, you might not think that we've got anything at all in favour of Henry. But we do. We must remember, in his early years, and for a long time, he was a Renaissance virtuous prince. Was he, though? He was. He had great education, he understood Latin easily, spoke French fluently, very uh, interested in theology and humanism, which he debated with Thomas More before he killed him, and Erasmus. <laughs> He's a great athlete, a fine horseman, tennis player, archer, extremely adept jouster, which he does all the time, until 1536 very creative and artistic, he's a great singer, he's able to sight read apparently, loves dancing, dressing up and play acting, composes poetry and music, though not green leaves as we say, builds more palaces than any other monarch, enriches Wolsey's ones that he takes from him like Whitehorse and James's Hampton Court Palace. He's a prototype Renaissance prince and we've got the big events like the Field of Cloth of Gold in France. Yeah, and I suppose he's promoting people like Hans Holbein and stuff. All the paintings, yeah. it's, you know, it's magnificent stuff. Yeah, OK, I'll take that back, that's a couple of points. In Britain, he starts to centralise the state a little bit more. In Wales, previously we've had 45 sort of quasi-independent lordships, six coastal counties, there's not much cohesion or order or royal authority. In 1536, he has an act of union. Wales properly divided into English county model with 27 MPs. English is made the official language, the borders are fixed, and it's very much... England he's Welsh Wales, himself, though, isn't he? He's got Welsh. He's got Welsh blood in yeah. him, yeah. His dad was born there. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Also, in Ireland, he intervenes quite a bit. Previously, in Ireland, we've seen English rule dominated in Dublin and what was known as the Pale, which is sort of 20, 40 miles around Dublin. Then we have Anglo-Irish nobles, sort of with reference to England, ruling in Leinster and Munster, which is the Kildare family. And then the Gaelic chieftains ruled sort of Connacht and Ulster without much reference to England. 
But this is a bit of a problem because it's increasingly hard to govern Ireland. Kildare gets arrested in 1534, so his son rebels, um, does a sort of Catholic crusade against Henry. Might have been quite dangerous had it been in 1536 when we've got the Pilgrimage of Grace. Instead, mm. 2,000 troops come along, sort it all out, and the Kildare family leaders all get executed. So it's a solution, yeah. because people in Ireland believe that the Pope is the head of state, because England has the lordship, which was granted by the Pope in the 12th century. 1541, Henry is made the King of Ireland. Good solution, I suppose, the one they'd like. Very good solution, and also we have a policy of surrender and regrant, whereby Irish chieftains are encouraged to surrender their lands to Henry, and then he gives them back to them as a fiefdom, so that they sort of submit to him. Which... As mixed success, but at the end of the day, Ireland's probably more stable, more under the thumb than it was at the start of the reign. Right. So he's sort of got different bits of the yeah. kingdom starting yeah. to come into play a bit more. In terms of his governance, he does some very good stuff in terms of picking able ministers. So he had Wolsey at the start, who's ruling from sort of 1515 to 29. Cromwell, again, um, very effective in the 1530s. He's a man from lower ranks rather than nobles. It's almost a kind of meritocracy in yeah. the fact that he knows that they're able to do the job. So he delegates and yet keeps a sort of an eye on what they're doing. Because he's lazy. Well, because he's lazy. Yeah, but it still works, doesn't it? And he's very wily as well, because he's able to make sure that the ministers always take the blame for unpopular policies. That's just like now. It's just like Nick Clegg's always <laughs> getting the blame. So some people suggest that actually Henry's very involved in what's going on, but he just keeps himself a little bit distant. Mm. So we have Wolsey and the amicable Grant, Cromwell with the Pilgrimage of Grace... It allows Henry to stay popular with his people and escape the consequences of actions while other people get the blame. Yeah, yeah. Which is important because the yeah. king needs to survive, which he hadn't always done in the last hundred years. Yeah, that is, I suppose, a lesson he's learned. And what was the rebellion up, the, up in the north again? Pilgrimage of Grace. Yeah, and they just wanted to get rid of his... Cromwell. Cromwell. Mm. Yeah, OK, so it did work. Yeah. And also it's important in this period for national identity, the break from Rome, the sense of isolation from mainland Europe, a new relationship with God... It's important in fostering a new sense of Englishness, which arguably is still very current today. Yeah. That's the good, but there is quite a lot of bad. Okay. As you said, in governance, yes, he delegates to good people, but ultimately he's lazy. Mm. Can't be bothered with the demands of administration. State papers had to be summarised or read to him, and he admitted that he found writing tedious and painful. Finances. This is a big, big no-no for Henry. If you remember, Henry VII worked really hard to amass a great fortune, around a million pounds or so in cash. Huge, huge fortune. Henry's 1513 campaign, after a few months, he's pretty much blown the whole lot. 1520s, the entire surplus has been exhausted. Now, he has his able ministers, of course. Wolsey implements stringent taxation policies. Cromwell wins huge riches through the dissolution of the monasteries, because basically all goes to the crown. They take in more tax than all their predecessors combined. Sorry. Wolsey Cromwell bring in more money to the crown than everyone else had previously all done. All previous kings put together. All put together. And Blimey. yet Henry still dies in debt. That is amazing. Incredibly extravagant. He increases the number of palaces from 12 to 55, and they're housing about 2,000 luxurious tapestries. His fingers were apparently one mass of jewelled rings. He had a jacket that cost as much as a farm. He spent thousands and thousands of pounds on gambling. He is spending, spending, spending. Wowzers. 
and he's damaging the economy. The price index rose 19 points up to 1544, another 23 points up to 1547, so it's nearly double what it was in 1509. I love the idea of a Tudor Nasdaq (laughs) (laughs) running around. (laughs) The pound lost 13% of its international value. Cranky Moses. Isn't very good for trade. The impact of this, of course, is successors really struggle for money, increasing reliance upon Parliament, which is arguably a major factor when we have Charles I, Oliver Cromwell, and the bringing down of the monarchy. Arguably it's got its roots in Henry's financial wastage. Okay. So that's not too good. No, it's not very good at all. We also have the Reformation, which has a lot of negative points. It's the sort of tyranny of ideology in many ways. Subjects can't just be personally loyal to Henry. They have to believe what he believes. So hence we have the act of succession where they have to swear that oath that they believe believe the same thing. Yeah, it's almost like a... Like a deity, almost a theocracy, because he's got control of the church and telling him what exactly. to do. Exactly. So Thomas More on the scaffold said that he was the king's good servant, but God's first. And for the first time, people were always having to choose between yeah, king and God. Right. The dissolution, 1536, around 250 smaller houses dissolved. By 1540, Waltham Abbey becomes the last of the great houses to fall. All within four years. Biggest upheaval in land ownership since 1066. Mm. And there's lots of destruction. Monastic libraries, despite efforts to rescue important texts. Bones of Saxon kings get lost. Alfred the Great, because of all of this, we don't have his bones anymore. Religious hospitals are closed, which used to care for the old and the poor, leading to the creation of wandering beggars and vagrants. Isn't too nice. Mm. Pilgrimage of Grace, as we saw, he very duplicitous in the way he dealt with that. In the end, around 216 people were executed, including lords, knights, abbots, monks and priests. And as we started to say earlier, there's a big contradiction in that Henry never really clearly states what he actually believes. Mm. So on the one hand, we see him getting rid of the monasteries, attacking pilgrimages and saints. Even the shrine of Thomas Becket gets attacked. And yet, 1539, in the six articles, he acknowledges traditional Catholic tenets like transubstantiation and clerical celibacy. So, yeah, so everyone's all over the place. They just don't want to... And it means there's great factionalism at court. So we've got split between the reformers like Cranmer and Cromwell, the conservatives like Gardner and Norfolk, and they're constantly plotting against each other, not just to be the one that's dominating, but to actually have their rivals killed off. And Henry doesn't take a lot of action to remedy this. He just likes holding the balance of power because it all takes place under him and even allows arrest warrants to be drawn up and cancelled, like for Catherine Parr. He does it for Cranmer as well. Just to keep people on their toes. Keeping them on their toes. Yeah, this, this is just an age of uncertainty then, isn't it, in every aspect. And got. that's what he passes on as mm. in his legacy to his son, who is a boy king. Yeah, it's not good. So you've got this uncertainty in religion, yeah. politics, yeah. and in war, because you're just constantly, is it the French, is it the Spanish? It's, that's not and good he's lost all. all the money. And he's lost all the money. Yeah. Hmm. It's not great, really. Subjectivity, if we're honest, it's not. There was good stuff, but there at the start, really he does stuff. a lot of nice things. I think there's the sinner aspect slightly outweighs the saint. <laughs> yes, um, but but I mean, I think yeah. I mean, the, we did mention all the um, all the uh, Renaissance stuff, yeah, which probably well, I I think we need to give quite a bit of credit for, yeah, so we don't slip back um, for. Hmm. I'm I'm gonna give him a three and a half. Okay. I think I think he deserves to be punished for all that bad he stuff. Does. 
So that's uh, seven and a half for subjectivity. Right. Looking good. Longevity. So he rules from 1509 to 1547, which is 38 years. It's all right. Especially when you consider the damage he did to his body for the most yeah. part. He does well to yeah, yeah. last as long as he does, really. Dynasty, not the program. Exactly like his father, three children, one boy, two girls. And all crowned. Or and not all crowned or all... all uh, yes, yeah, well, yes, all crowned, all women. followed him as monarch. Yeah. So that is a total score for Henry of 76.5. It's a high score, but does he deserve that final award? Does he have that lasting legacy, that impact, that great achievement, that star quality, which we call... Rex Factor! Now, Graham, I know your answer. <laughs> but lay out your stool. Well... In his favour, his impact on history, the Reformation completely changes the course of Britain, Europe, arguably even the world because of later empire. Still a major issue today, 500 years later. Monarchic power probably realises the full potential of the crown. He's probably the most powerful monarch in English history. Yeah, undoubtedly. This is the epitome of royal power. We've got the image of monarchy, Holbein's famous portraits, other people too. It defines what it looks like. Oh, the one where he's got his hands on his hips. And his that's bulging codpiece. Yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. And in terms of the popular imagination now, he still dominates shows like The Tudors, um, he's a character in horrible histories. My dad will want to mention that Rick Wakeman did a concept album about his wives. <laughs> he's the definition of star quality. He is. No, he is. And that is what we're looking for. But you've got to admit, there's there's some pretty dodgy ground there. He's got a few uh, blocks in his copybook, I'll admit. He's a tyrant, which you mentioned himself, yourself. Yeah. He's a bit of a tyrant. Um, but so, can he really be a Rex Factor winner when you're when you're classing him as a tyrant? He's the, a tyrannical. He's king. probably the only proper fallout, all powerful tyrant that we've had. Yeah, he's a Nero character. Very much, but not but charming. Yes. Yeah. And that's the thing. He's got this sort of hold over us because he's still got that charm that's it. and that promise he had at the start. You're exactly. never quite able to let go of what could have been. Even exactly, even when he's cutting off his <laughs> wife's head, which I still can't quite get my head round. Yes. Unfortunately, head rolled. Um, I, yeah, it's just that that star, as you say, that star quality, which is what we're looking for. So, I'm going to obviously say yes as well, um, but it's because. I'm saying he's a tyrant, mm. and I don't think he should get the Rex Factor, <laughs> but he just has, still has that star quality, which which is exactly what the Rex Factor is, so you've got to give it to him. He does have to give it. I'm a yes as well, but as you said, he's also a tyrant and I a just, bad king in so yeah, many ways. Yeah, exactly. He wastes all the money, messes the country up, it's doesn't a conflict. achieve military glory. He, but I, don't, I almost don't think he deserves it, but he does. He almost deserves punishment, yeah. but yeah. ultimately... He's got the star quality in abundance. He has to have the Rex Factor. Well done, well done which is exactly what he would want. Yeah, he would. That would be his greatest joy. He's got the glory and immortality that he looked for at the start. But he would be upset by the fact that we never mentioned any of his military success when we awarded it to him. <laughs> Indeed. It's the first time I think we've given a Rex Factor award to someone who was militarily a failure. Yeah, so there you go. Um, one of our listeners, Nick, who didn't think we gave enough to uh, people who weren't just great warriors. Here we go. We've rewarded oh, there we go. one of the greatest yeah, tyrants in history. Tyrant. There you go. So that is it for Henry VI. Uh, Henry VIII, thing. <laughs> Henry VI is long gone. Now, what we're going to do for the first time ever, our next episode, we're going to do a little supplementary one. Yeah. Because the big question is, how does he turn from that great hope in 1509 to this vulgar tyrant 
who weighs 28 stone. Big question. Very big question. Yeah. There are lots of theories, and what we're going to do is have a little episode next week where we're going to go through those, and if you've got any thoughts, email us, rexactorpodcast.com, yeah, Twitter, Facebook, etc. After that, we'll be on to his son, Edward VI. Until then, it's goodbye for me. Goodbye.